Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, February the 1st, 2023. New month, but old problems, particularly in the oldest part of the world, or at least the oldest civilizational part of the world, the Middle East. We are back to a cycle of violence in the Middle East, particularly in Israel uh, slash Palestine. Uh, New York Times reports that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the new old uh, Israeli prime minister, is juggling competing goals. Again, old story for how long we've been hearing that for a while, too. Uh, Tony Blinken, uh, Joe Biden's uh, secretary of state, is visiting Israel right now uh, amidst uh, tension over violence with the Palestinians, according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Tony Blinken, uh, the American Secretary of State, has urged Israel-Palestine calm. Again, we've heard that one before. Generation after generation of uh, American Secretaries of State have urged calm without much impact. Um, according to the London Guardian, a uh, left-leaning newspaper, uh, there is a risk now in uh, Israel-Palestine of what they call a third uh, intifada. Others are suggesting that violence between Israel and Palestinians may be entering a, a devastating new stage, uh, perhaps symbolized by uh, uh, earlier this week, uh, a 13-year-old Palestinian boy wounding two people in an attack in East Jerusalem. So it all seems so hopeless. We've been through these cycles time and time again. And I was Intrigued to get a pitch from a publicist. I get a lot of pitches on Keen On for new books. Publicist of a new book that seemed intriguing, maybe hopeful. I mean, who knows? There have been so many promises of peace, so many promises of figuring out how to fix this thing. Uh, I got a pitch from a new book uh, co-written by my guest today. Um, Dr. Emily Bashar, a book called Addictive Ideologies, Finding Meaning and Agency When Politics Fails You. The pitch about this book, which came out late last year, in December last year, suggested that it might offer a window of hope, of new thinking about the current situation uh, in Israel-Palestine. So I invited uh, Dr. Emily Bashar, co-author of Addictive Ideologies, onto the show. And she's joining us from um, Scottsdale in Arizona. Very nice uh, at this time of the year. Uh, Dr. Bashar, um, cheer me up on this stuff. What are you offering? What are you saying in this book that hasn't been said a million times before? Why? How, how is your book offering some hope for this dismal situation in Israel-Palestine. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, my co-author and life partner, Paul Johnson, and I um, are really excited to talk about hope and talk about optimism and how to promote self-agency and not giving your power away and not allowing politicians to 
tell you how to think or feel or how to vote um, or not allowing political parties uh, or even media for that matter to control what you think. Um, and the news and, and the media really, even in America, you don't even have to go to the Middle East to feel um, so much in despair and in terror of our fate in this world and even of humanity in general. You can even look at what's happening in the US. And um, there, there can be a lot to feel very pessimistic and skeptic about. But what Paul and I are saying are, let's stop complaining about what everyone else is not doing and let's look at ourselves. And all you have really to control is yourself. And if each and every one of us took accountability and responsibility for our world and our lives and what is happening within our communities uh, and affected change positively and limited how much we were impacted or influenced by those who want to control our mind, um, that one by one, we would be living in a better world and a better society. Um, I have to admit, Dr. Besha, I'm not really convinced with what you're saying. Um, it seems terribly vague. Is this the sort of thing you would tell this 13-year-old Palestinian boy who goes around shooting at Israelis, clearly beyond reason, beyond hope, that he should call for agency? Are you suggesting in this... Um, Palestine-Israel conflict that uh, the two sides are in the same situation? Well, I disagree with you. I don't think that a 13-year-old is beyond reason or beyond hope. And I would, I do uh, plenty of forensic evaluations, clinical assessments um, with people who are accused of terrorism. And I do a deep dive analysis into... Sorry, their sorry, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt. You, you, you say you do... Uh... You do evaluations of people accused of terrorism? Correct, yes. Uh, could you give me some, some examples? Yeah, so these are people facing criminal charges, not unlike that 13-year-old in Jerusalem. Um, and the question is, what is the motivation and the driving factor that would cause a 13-year-old to feel that their only choice is to go and shoot people of an opposing party? And... Um, you know, some people would say, well, he's brainwashed and he's been radicalized. And while that very much likely might be true, I would also want to look at historical and intergenerational trauma. What is this person being told? Um, how much power and control do they feel that they have to affect in their lives? What could possibly be some other outlets? There are plenty of um, factors that go into um, looking at risk factors for somebody to be indoctrinated and radicalized, and that's isolation, uh, that they, they don't feel that they have a sense of power and control, um, and they feel like their options are really limited, uh, and they feel like this is maybe all that they have left or can do. Are, are you suggesting... An particularly when it comes to um, the situation, the dilemma of the Palestinians in Israel, are, are you suggesting that their behavior, that even ideology itself is somehow irrational, that it's a form of psychosis? I, I would say it's irrational. I'd be cautious in calling it psychosis. Uh, you know, I'm very 
conservative when it comes to using words like uh, delirium or dissociation or psychosis. Or madness. Yeah, you know, or madness, uh, because those are real psychological constructs, and, and I don't use those terms loosely. Um, and so I would describe that it is a form of addiction, and there are uh, neurological... What ide ideologies are a form of addiction, or suffering yeah. is a form of addiction? Yes, so ideologies are a form of addiction, and what happens in the brain, and there's plenty of neurological studies to show this, is people are running on the reptilian brain. They're operated by their fight or flight or freeze response, which is also termed the amygdala hijack, and they're not operating their neofrontal cortex, which is used for higher order thinking, rational thought, um, it's a form of really uh, impulse control, behavioral inhibition, um, and impulse uh, um, uh, being able to self-regulate one's emotional responses. So all of these things are so important um, if the brain is in hyperdrive in this fight, flight, freeze response. There's actually so you're, you're 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 taking history and the world out of all this. I mean, there are situations, perhaps for the Palestinians living in Israel, not their word for that, or uh, people living under European colonial rule where uh, anger, resentment, perhaps even violence can be justified. Is that right? Or, or would you dismiss this? Would you tell, for example, people living in the Congo under Belgium colonial rule that they should have agency? and that their ideology, their hostility to colonialism is a form of addiction. So there's a couple of things I would say to this, is looking at dissecting of the human condition. Each and every one of us has the propensity for good and evil. We do see that historically, we do see that cross-culturally, cross and we see that in modern times. I don't know what that means, we each have the propensity for good and evil. I, that's a, a, an odd thing to say. What, what do you mean by that? I'd love you to mean give We all have the propensity to, I don't know, murder tens of millions of people. Correct. Or alternatively, foster hope and optimism and change and growth and leadership and success. Um, so all of those things are possibilities. I don't believe that- But they're not really. I mean, give me some examples of, of that. It, it, it's very vague, it's, it's not convincing. I'd love to give you an example. Uh, so my family is Jewish Iraqi and uh, I was born in Canada, but my parents and my family members um, suffered extreme hardship and trauma and tragedy during the rise of Saddam Hussein. Actually, just last Friday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. And for us, uh, was also a remembrance and memorialization of the hangings of Jews who were falsely accused for being spies for Israel, um, two of whom were 17 years old. Uh, this was a political propaganda ploy by Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party um, in order to incite violence against the Jews. And this is a way of dehumanizing outgroup members to be able to incite violence because 
what he was doing was taking an opportunity of fear and change and reform and building anger and resentment. And he needed an outgroup in order to do that. Um, there were many other minorities who were also being oppressed and victimized um, by the Ba'ath Party. Um, but just speaking from personal accounts in my family's stories, uh, things that ensued after the hangings um, was that people's bank accounts were being frozen. Uh, people were escaping, leaving everything that they built and left behind them. It became like a witch hunt. Any neighbor or business member uh, could point to whoever they wanted to and say, he's a spy for Israel. And that person was abducted by the government. Uh, my grandfather is an example of that. Uh, one day he was abducted by political um, Bath Party security forces. And he went into a jail, which is translated to the palace of no return, because any prisoners who went in never came out. He was horrifically tortured. We have declassified CIA reports now showing us um, and telling us uh, about the mass atrocities that were occurring in these jails. Uh, and even to this day, my family has no confirmation of what happened to my grandfather. So, okay, so I uh, know, and, and, and this is obviously a, a, a tragic story of, of life under Saddam Hussein, but I, I'm not entirely sure what this has to do with addictive ideologies. Well, the question is, how did all those Arabs who were rising in the streets, who were the neighbors and friends of my family members, who went to school with my family members, were suddenly in a day chanting and dancing and rejoicing at the hangings in the public square? Or they were rioting in front of the schools, yelling at the Jews who were coming in to attend their classes. Um, or neighbors who were coming in and stealing their, their items once the houses had been abandoned after people had disappeared. I'm saying these Arabs are not inherently born evil. Something happened and triggered them to then choose and be persuaded and swayed by political parties because they were able to mind control mass populations, and we look at Eric Hoffer, who talks about these mass movements. How does this happen? It comes from people who have lost something, and they want it back. And if you have a leader who feels that they can give a promise of giving something that they feel that they have lost, especially if they have a victim mentality, they will stop at no ends and no means. Are you comparing? Uh, are you comparing Saddam Hussein and, and and Benjamin Netanyahu? Sounds as if you are. Are you suggesting that they both bring out the worst in people? No, no, absolutely not. Because I think people I would be a little that. outraged if if no, not no, everyone no, loves Benjamin uh, Netanyahu. But this is uh, not what I'm saying. Yeah, please. He don't doesn't describe. even. He doesn't even. Uh, please don't. Doesn't even have a mustache. No. Um, no, no. I'm talking about dictators and authoritarians and the rise to power of such people. And they usually are met with very violent ends. Now, I'm not making a comparison there of such leaders, uh, but authoritarian governments and people in masses who open themselves up to be mind controlled, again, going back to the amygdala hijack and addictive ideologies, if they see themselves as victims and who they see themselves as having lost something, um, and especially if there's- uh, You know, I, I take your point. And of course, 
there's probably a little bit of truth there, but sometimes oh, there, are, there are real. Are you agreeing with me? <laughs> I'm not agreeing with you. I'm, oh, I'm okay, suggesting okay. that there may be some truth, but there are real situations of oppression. I mean, what are people supposed to do when they live in a world where their own group, their own community, their own society is, for one reason or other, oppressed? Uh, it's it's not. It seems to be an excuse for a almost avoiding the, the broader theme of injustice, whether it's in the Middle East or elsewhere in, in, post in, in, in a colonial world. Are you suggesting that there are never reasons to be angry, to, to pick up sort of um, political ideologies? Andrew, I think you're finally starting to understand our point. And, um, and it is that there is danger to really... Um, holding on to that victim oppressive mindset. And we even see that in counterculture and woke culture, um, as well as uh, right-wing authoritarianism and the alt-right. Um, you know, they see themselves as an oppressed um, and oppressed by another group, whatever you want to call that out group. Um, and so they direct their hatred and their animosity and their resentment towards that group so much that you know they're willing to give up some of their rights, even if it might mean um, being able to overcome that group. Uh, and, and so this is where it becomes very concerning. This is not the majority. These are definitely more radicalized right and left-wing groups that we see here today. Um, and it is concerning. And so victimization and seeing yourself as oppressed, I'm not saying that you weren't legitimately victimized. I can argue my family was legitimately victimized, that they have a right to hate Arabs. But what would be the purpose? You know, why, why, how would that serve a greater good? Um, and it doesn't mean that just because some Arabs had turned on my family members, does that mean that all Arabs must now pay the penalty and the cost for that? No, because we see people as individuals and I see people as individuals. So I'm not going to lump them all together into one group. I'm not going to be, and this is the danger of anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-Asian American rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric, anti-Jewish rhetoric, whatever it is. I mean, all of that is very, very dangerous. Um, and it does paint that pathway towards this addictive ideology, because especially when you're starting to suppress that neocortex and um, amplify that fear response, um, people are willing to give up their agency and their individuality for power. So, so let's focus, as I said, the, the pitch for you was on uh, how your, your book can help figure out the situation in, 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 in Israel. Um, how, how if, if, if everyone read your book in, in Israel, Palestine, what, what would happen? What would be the change? What would you like to see happen? Well, Paul and I wrote about these seven ideals, and we break them down and talk about it on our podcast as well, The Optimistic American. Um, we talk about finding truth. We talk about personal accountability, um, that it's important to find meaning over happiness. What is your purpose in life? Asking, who are you? Um, again, that sounds, again, with all due respect, it sounds a little psychobabblish. It's a very individualistic approach, and it's not about blaming 
people. It's not about blaming uh, people who have hurt you or maligned you or oppressed you, even though there may be a legitimate right to that. But you inherently have a responsibility. So, Andrew, okay, let's so let's let's use the example of a um, an angry adolescent living on the Gaza Strip, seeming without a great deal of hope. How should they? How should they? Um, make sense of that in terms of their own lives. Give me some ways in which the 13-year-old who wants to wound Israelis, how would this change their life? What should they do? Well, I do see them here in America. and um, I No, have I asked about uh, Palestinians in, in the West Bank, not about America. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the problem is that there's a legitimacy argument um, and the concern, and this is where there's this uh, conflict uh, impasse, is that if one feels that they've been legitimized, that automatically delegitimizes the right of the other. And uh, there needs to be a paradigm shift. And so for a 13-year-old, I would look at what has been their family narrative what has been their community narrative? What have they been told? What are their losses? Because there are horrific stories of collective and community and family intergenerational trauma. It exists on both sides. And if you really listen to both Israelis and Palestinians, you would hear that they have these stories of losses and threat and feel of insecurity um, and a feeling of a delegitimacy. Uh, and I, if I was working with him, I would want to find what options and choices do you see that you have to affect change in your personal life, in your family's life? What are those? And how, how can we help you to be able to affect change in a way that's more pro-social rather than attacking or killing um, yourself or going on a suicide mission in order to make a political statement or in order to possibly get something back from Hamas uh, that might be rewarding you and possibly your family because of your, your death. Um, and looking at how do they really perceive martyrdom? And, and part of this is ideology. And if they really appreciated it. Yeah, no, I, I take your point. Are there legitimate? I mean, you've got this idea, or the book is called, um, which I was intrigued with, but also very suspicious, addictive ideologies. Is there such a thing as a, a non-addictive ideology when it comes to politics? That would be one that's very balanced. If it's a non- right, in your view, but I, I mean, aren't, aren't there such things as legitimate ideologies? Do you have to approve of them as 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 the doctor here for them to be legitimate? Well, no, I, I don't have a well, very. Could you give me an example of a legitimate ideology? Say, classic Western liberalism is that legitimate? John Stuart Mill. So there are various ideologies. The ones that Paul and I are arguing that become addictive are the ones that are more radicalized and more extreme. And again, it doesn't permit you that logic or rational thought um, in being able to really discern and evaluate and look at the pros and cons and engage in a meaningful conversation like we are and being able to debate. 
um, meaningfully and rationally with evidence and going back and forth. That that is healthy. That is. So you would approve of I don't know Martin Luther King, for example. But what about Malcolm X? Would you suggest that his ideology is addictive, whereas uh, MLK's is is rational in response to the profound injustice of the of the subjugation of African Americans in America? So there's a great researcher, um, Belanger, who looked at ideologies that promote and incite violence and ones who legitimize violence. And I think this, this should be a very important differentiating factor. If an ideology is in support of violence or killing or silencing, just like woke culture and uh, uh, council culture is doing, um, silencing their opposition who they see as the oppressor, um, that, that is removing the right and legitimacy of somebody to, to be engaging in a, a rational, intellectual dialogue and be able to debate and be able to have a verbal uh, conflict and to be able to find some kind of resolution. Um, as soon as you're killing that person or silencing them or imprisoning them or violently attacking them, um, that that is an an incited form of radicalized uh, ideology, which is very dangerous. So I assume um, you would approve of MLK. What about Malcolm X? Again, I would look at what what is, you know, I'm not just going to say, oh, I approve this person or I disapprove of this person. I'm going to actually look at, like, well, what part of what they're saying are you asking my opinion on? Um, I, I, I'm not going to support if somebody's propaganda and belief systems are are about legitimizing violence towards outgroup members or even identifying a group on the basis of their race or their religion or their culture um, uh, or what they may have that you might not. Or well, there, there could be. Sometimes it seems as if violence is unavoidable and inevitable. Israel was founded on the, the violence of the Stern Gang. The Palestinian movement was founded on the violence of the PLO that later tried to make some degree of peace with the Israel. Is violence for you always irrational? You know, there, there has to be consequences for actions. I, I'd like to believe in a justice system, and I would want to promote a democratic you know, what we have in America is a wonderful thing. Um, I, I'm not saying that we have to, you know, overthrow a government if on the basis of disagreeing with our current government. I'm saying, well, what about social mobility and mobilizing people and voting? And I mean, we've done many shows, um, uh, Dr. Bashar, on, um, on the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how were the Jews in Europe supposed to respond to uh, to the Nazis? Were they supposed to talk about paradigm shifts and, and, and wonder about legitimacy arguments? You know, Viktor Frankl is a perfect person to go to, um, to if you're talking about a Holocaust survivor who has just such insurmountable wisdom and resilience. Um, and, and I would look to strength because, you know, safetyism versus strength is something that's very important. And I think something, again, that that is relevant and, and prevalent in what's happening in the Middle East, but also what's happening. Oh, you didn't respond to where you say Viktor Frankl. What were the Jews of, of Warsaw supposed to do? Fight back, right? 
Well, there are many stories of heroes, child heroes. There were resistance movements of people who lived in the forest during the winters. Right, but my, but my point is, how, how do you distinguish between, say, and I'm not necessarily making this argument, but some people might, that, that there isn't a lot of difference between fighting back against the Nazis or fighting back against the Israelis? I want to believe in a justice system that works. Uh, it may not be perfect, um, but that, that's one that I'm going to promote. Because if I believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and have a vengeful God that I believe to or I pray to, um, what kind of promise does that give for humanity? Um, again, the good and evil exist in all of us. Viktor Frankl could have turned into a killing machine, but uh, you know he, he chose to live. He chose to survive in order to publish his book, and he survived such horrific circumstances. There are so many countless stories of resilience and strength, and they gave up their safety. And there are so many people who give up their safety in order for strength. Um, that that's not something that they're seeking or they're willing to die for or fight for. But um, there is a tremendous power in, in having that meaning and purpose to survive. And uh, so in America, I have many freedoms in here that if had I been born in Iraq, I wouldn't have had. Uh, I have the opportunity to be a psychologist. I have the opportunity to have a doctorate, to own property, um, to have a private practice. These are all things I couldn't afford to be able to be on your show. This is this is a freedom that I get to exercise and exercise my opinion as a woman. Um, these are all wonderful things that we have to fight to preserve because it can be taken away. And uh, so I have the opportunity. I would say, you know, I want to fight to defend democracy. I want to fight to defend a justice system that works, that isn't going to hang innocent Jews just for the sake of propaganda.